you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Josh gave it away. We're going to be in the Beatitudes today. Matthew chapter 5. And we are looking at the second of Christ's Beatitudes here in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we have sung much of your care and your comfort. We have sung much of your son that you sent to win our redemption by the shedding of his own blood. We have sung much of you being our God and you being close to us and you choosing a people for yourself and us being your people and you being our God and the intimate relationships involved there. And God, sometimes we can come away unchanged without thinking. We sing these songs that are familiar to us, maybe or unfamiliar. We don't sing them. and, And God, I pray that today. You grab our attention, you fixate us on the scripture, and by your spirit, you reach into our hearts and you change us. That's why we've come today. Maybe some have come to see somebody, to fellowship, to make an appearance, to keep a religious duty. But God, I pray that you would use your word through broken, weak instruments. Use your word that it would go forth and we know it will not return void. And so we pray that whatever reason people are here, God, you've gathered them here and that you would speak to my heart, you would speak to their heart and that we would be changed and that we would anticipate and look forward to full and final comfort from all these things that mourn, that cause us to mourn and to ache and that, God, we would look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, as we often do. We pray these things because of the name of Christ. Amen. Good to see you all. I thought I'd say that. It's good to see everyone here. It's nice to see some people that, I, that haven't been here maybe in a couple of weeks. It's good to see everyone. I don't know about you, but I love to travel. I've traveled a little bit. Um, been able to get out of the country, off the continent, and um, get out of the state. Um, when we lived in Virginia, we traveled quite a bit. We uh, have we had a program with a company that I work for. They're an airline. We get you know you scratch our back, we scratch your back with other airlines. And so we didn't have any kids. And when vacation time came, we could you know we flew to Seattle because it was the farthest away from Virginia. That's how we decided where we would go. And um, and then the next year, God brought us here um, and uh, to this church. And so. We love to travel, but I don't know about you, but I'm the type that if I know where I'm going ahead of time, uh, I always know where I'm going ahead of time. I usually pick the vacation months in advance, uh, maybe a year in advance, and uh, I I get brochures. I find the city website and uh, I order brochures. I'm that guy that gets all these brochures and has them in his bathroom and looks at them. And 
you know, dreams of the hotels and the restaurants and for months. Yeah, that's me. I know. And um, some call it planning. I call it obsession, maybe. But I just enjoy it. And my dad and I share the same kind of fascination. And um, and uh, I just I enjoy that kind of thing. And I look forward to it with great anticipation. And if I see something on TV that reminds me or says the word of somewhere where I want to go or where we're planning to go, you know, I stop and think about it, maybe jot it down in a moleskin that I'll never look at again and try and remember these things because I'm ready and I'm anticipating this trip that's going to come. And uh, I think you might know where I'm going with this. It might be starting to get sort of obvious, but we're all going on a trip. All of us who are believers, maybe it's today. God, I pray it's today. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's not in our lifetime. But all of us at some point are going on a trip. And the question is, are we anticipating that trip? The trip is when Jesus comes back. And we make our final home with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Are we anticipating that? And if we are, do we allow things to distract us from our anticipation? There's certain things that inevitably will heighten the anticipation that we might have. Maybe songs like that we just sang. These are the songs that say, yes, I can do this for 10,000 lifetimes. But then there's times where maybe we get so down in the dumps that, you know, heaven, I'm just trying to get to to tomorrow, let alone next week. Then, Then when we're out of this mess, we can think about heaven. Sometimes the down the dumps make us want to look forward to, to getting out of here and going to heaven all the much more. But I pray that's actually the case. Josh led us last week through verse 3. The beatitude, those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who see themselves spiritually destitute and completely God-reliant for everything. Because it's those who their blessing is the kingdom of heaven because they see themselves as nothing, able to give God nothing. God is everything and has done everything spiritually for us. And so for those people, they're utterly destitute when it comes to spiritual things. And they have received the kingdom of heaven. They have been given hearts of faith because of the work of Christ and their inheritance is the kingdom. Josh said their inheritance is actually a relationship with the king. Because it's not a physical kingdom we can touch with our hands and feel and, and hold. We have a relationship with the king himself as we anticipate an actual kingdom where we will reign with Christ forevermore. So then this week we come to another blessing where Jesus opens up and he begins to teach. This is the second one that's actually recorded in Matthew. And he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The word blessed could mean happy, fortunate. You are the fortunate ones who mourn. Again, that's an ironic statement that we looked at last week even. You are, you are the fortunate ones who are poor in spirit. That's countercultural. The world doesn't see it that way. The word could also mean congratulations. You who mourn. Congratulations. 
I'm sorry this has happened, but I just wanted to stop in and just say a quick word of congratulations. Congratulations on losing your job. That's excellent. That's wonderful to hear. How can we say that? Well, I think when we begin to look at two questions, what does Jesus mean by mourn? And what does Jesus mean by comfort, comforted? When we answer those two questions, I think that we'll see that those who are poor in spirit, the ones that were in the verse before, the poor in spirit, kingdom disciples, kingdom disciples will mourn, anticipating the full and final comfort that comes with the return of Jesus. Kingdom disciples, those who are poor in spirit, they're going to mourn. Not mourning in and of itself, where that's the end, but they mourn anticipating a full and final comfort that comes with the return of Jesus. Let's look at first the question of those who mourn. What does Jesus mean when he says those who mourn? In what way are they mourning? Well, this word is used all throughout Scripture. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used in the book of Isaiah in chapter 61. This is actually thought to be probably the background passage to the Beatitudes, if not at least the first half of the Beatitudes. If you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 61, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Isaiah's writing here, and he says in verse 1, The Spirit of God, the Lord God, is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. Vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees, planted by the Lord to glorify him. Isaiah is speaking mainly to the nation of Israel, and, and things are not going so well uh, and he's speaking to these people who most, for the most part, have deviated from God and any kind of a relationship with him. God is desiring that by the prophet Isaiah, that he would draw them back to himself. And here Isaiah gives an encouragement to the people that the spirit is on him because the Lord anointed him to bring good news to the poor. To heal captives, to comfort all who mourn. And so Jesus, it's assumed and uh, widely accepted that he used that as the background for the beginning of the Beatitudes. What does that do for us as believers when we read this type of thing? We read, we read Isaiah, and, and much of Isaiah, if you've spent time in Isaiah, is somewhat confusing. We read it and we wonder, who's he talking to? What's all this language of judgment and all this language of blessing into Israel? And what, what applies to me? But then we come to the New Testament and we read Jesus' words. And it maybe is a, quite a bit un, uh, more easily understood. Blessed are those who mourn. What are the people in Isaiah mourning for? They're mourning because it says they got, God's going to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. So for some reason, there's destruction of the city. There is death. There is despair. 
vengeance. They're prisoners. So already in one illustration where this word is used, this Greek word that's used in the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, it has a wide semantic range. The New Testament uses the same word in, in a variety of ways. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2, when he says it's widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief. The word grief is our word mourn. So this is mourning over sin that they should be having, but instead they have a sense of pride. You should be still instead filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. This is a mourning of sin that is not seen by the Corinthians that Paul is calling them to have. Also in Mark 16, there's mourning over death. Jesus has passed away. He has been crucified. And his followers are mourning his death. Early, this is verse 9. Early on the first day of the week, after Jesus had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. There is mourning over death. There is also mourning over financial loss. In Revelation, the merchants of the earth are mourning because the city of Babylon has fallen and all, with the city has fallen all of their chances for gain and for riches. Three times it's mentioned that they are mourning over the loss of the city. So there's mourning over financial loss. We're seeing more and more this semantic range of this word is bigger and bigger. And we're trying to figure out what Jesus is meaning when he uses the word here in Matthew 5. Also in Matthew 9.15, Jesus states, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? While this is originally referring to Jesus leaving them for a short time at the crucifixion. So Jesus is saying, can the wedding guests, you believers, mourn while I am with you? I'm the bridegroom. While I'm with you, should you be mourning? No, you should be joyous. You should be happy because I'm right here with you. While it's readily understand that that's the intention Jesus has, this can also be applied for us. Because Jesus is not yet right here with us. We are not face to face. And, and Revelation says that there is coming the marriage supper of the Lamb where the bridegroom will come for his bride. And so there's a sense of mourning that is mourning until Jesus returns. So we add even more to our semantic range. Lastly, there's a sense of mourning for the final judgment. And I think this is, this is uh, as well important to add. Luke 6.25 Woe to you now who are full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. This is in Luke 6.25. And these two woes that Luke pronounces come right after Luke's beatitudes that are the exact same as the two we've already seen in Matthew. Luke repeats the same Beatitudes in a little bit different style. And then after that, he states these two woes that take the exact opposite and say, Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn. He had just said two or three verses earlier, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will soon laugh. 
And now he turns it up on its head and says, woe to those who are now laughing. You will mourn and weep. So in what sense is Jesus referring to mourning? If we're wanting to understand what Jesus is telling us here, blessed are those who mourn. Okay, I cry all the time. That's not me. I cry all the time. What is it that I'm supposed to be mourning for? What is it that Jesus is saying is blessed? That's going to be blessed by comfort. Because we want to know. We want to know what it is that our Savior is saying kingdom disciples should look like. Should we just look like weepy people who walk around and are quick to cry? Some of us, men maybe more so than ladies, might might balk at that. There's a machoism that goes around with crying and not wanting to teach your son maybe to cry. And so we, we knock him down a few times so that they learn to, to take, take the hit. Just kidding. He's only two. So what's Jesus saying here? Why do, why do, what is it that we're looking for that Jesus is saying is the correct definition of mourning? Well, I think when we look at how the Bible uses the term mourning and then add on that, that Jesus is referring back to Isaiah and in the context of Matthew, where Matthew is writing to these Jewish Christians who have just been ousted from their synagogue, most likely, and who are dealing with the Jew across the street who is a strong Jew, who probably now hates them because they have gone against the faith that everyone was believing. I mean, if it, we don't have this now, well, we do, but where a whole ethnic group believes one religion. Where if all Anglo-Saxons in the United States were Protestants, and if you dared err from that, imagine what your your neighborhood's now going to look like. You know, imagine you know what the, what all your neighbors are going to think of you if you're the one guy in the neighborhood who is not a Protestant or other examples. I'm sure that this exists all the time, uh, maybe even more so in, in Muslim countries, but where there's uh, outright persecution from your own neighbors and people. And so Jesus is referring to that. And Matthew uses these words of Jesus to speak to a certain people with this semantic range saying, blessed are those who mourn. And I think that we can take it and mean in any instance, blessed are you who mourn because you will be comforted. So whether you are mourning because you lost a loved one, whether you are mourning because you have financial loss, whether you're mourning over sin or social evils or a boy at school called you a name that was mean or your parents are unfair. The point is not, well, that's a silly reason to cry over. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is pointing us to a bigger picture and he's saying it's, it's not about what you're mourning over, per se. The point is that you will be comforted, that there's coming a day where it's not going to be all about mourning. Mourning is not the end. There's coming a day where there will be full and final comfort. And so if I mourn because a guy at work made fun of me, I have to realize that there's coming a day where I will receive full and final comfort from my Savior. And I pray that that being made fun of at work leads me to anticipate that which is to come. So I think the question is not, 
what is it that we're allowed to mourn over? But the question is more, why do you mourn? I know that might sound the exact same, but I want to pose it in this way, because there are certain things that we mourn for that are just natural. There's natural things. You lose a loved one. You're grieving. Um, If your child is hurt, there's mourning and crying. But if we sin, there's not always the same natural response in mourning. Think about it this way. I asked our, my community group about mourning and why people mourn. And someone said, you mourn when you lose something you love. That's the natural response. I lose something I love, I mourn. A, a kid gets a toy taken away from him, he cries. Or he, he lashes out. Someone has something said bad about him, you cry. Or that's natural for us to do. The harder question is, And what somebody else then quickly replied with is, do we mourn when we can't get rid of something we hate? I'm not referring to an annoying brother or sister who won't leave you alone or that neighbor who mows his yard late. But do we mourn over the fact that our abortion is killing a baby every 55 minutes here in the Portland Tri-County area? Do you mourn injustice in society? Do you mourn the fact that you still gossip to that certain Christian every time you get together, no matter how many times you've made a resolution to stop? Do you mourn your selfishness that comes out toward your spouse and children? Do you mourn that your neighbor does not know the love of Christ and will spend eternity mourning in judgment? These things move us and we are sad about them. And sometimes we think, I should be mourning about that stuff. I should be concerned about my neighbor. That should drive me to grief. But then all too quickly, we come back, and sometimes self comes to the forefront. We might pray for our sin or social evils, but it doesn't affect us to change. Why is it so easy to mourn over the things that I lose? Because those things affect me. I have lost something. My sin, however, affects God. And even though I want to stop it, my love for myself continues doing it. Charles Spurgeon on this passage gave a perspective that I think is helpful. He prayed, Lord, let me weep for naught but sin and after none but thee. And then I would, oh, that I might, a constant mourner be. Lord, let me weep for naught but sin, and after none but Thee. What are you quick to mourn over? What are you quick to cry over? What draws your emotions and brings you to tears? Is it when things don't go our way? Or is it when the name of Christ is put down? Or God, God's glory is demeaned by our continual sin. And we don't have a desire to take care of it. James 4, 6 through 10. 
is an encouragement for us, but also stands as an excellent help for us in times like this. James 4, you might remember this when we went through the book of James several uh, year and a half ago. You might, you might remember a year and a half ago. I don't remember last week, so I'm not going to remember what I preach tomorrow. So James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here, I think, is the key for us as Christians. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Draw near to God. I think that we mourn, we weep over things that are natural, but not over our sin, not over things that are concerning to God, because we are far from God. And we think, I'm doing, I'm doing good things, I'm doing church things, I'm doing things to help society maybe, or I'm taking care of my children well, and I'm trying to do what's, what's right. But when it comes to just lingering long with God, I don't have time for that. We don't, we don't make time just to draw near. The promise is draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Our theology tells us that God is sovereign and that He works all things for our good. Works all things for good to those who love Him. But our experience tells us that mourning stinks. We don't like crying and lingering long over sin and death. That's why we love grace. That's why we love talking about grace. And I am in no way demeaning talking about grace. But I think sometimes we can take the idea of grace and slap that as a sticker over our sin and forget that we are people who are still living dead to the power of sin, but who still sin. We're saint and sinner at the same time, Martin Luther said. We are still sinning. And yet I think we call out to grace and we thank God that he has. We sing, Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sins. And yet we don't want to take ownership of the fact that we're still struggling with these very indwelt sins. We're still doing the very same things that are causing us not to be poor in spirit. We're not destitute. We're not poor. We're prideful people who all we care about is our way and what what we want to be doing right now. And you say, man, that's really harsh. You, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. We've, we're, you know, we've all been coming for a long time. Am I? There's indwelling sin that's in all of us. And I think the admonition is helpful that. We all need to hear. And so when we're talking about Jesus promising blessing to those who mourn, I want us to be mourning and seeing our sin as something that draws us to mourn over. That our relationship with God is one where 
we draw near to God. We linger long with God. We submit to him. We put ourselves under him. So that when we're coming close to the light, it's easy to see in those dark shadows where things are lingering that maybe we weren't getting a glimpse of before. And sometimes I feel like we want what is, give me steps, give me something that's tangible that I can just hold on to and check off. And the step is get to know God. The step is dwell with God. Just be with Him. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. What more do we want? Jesus promises the blessing is not for those whom the blessing is not your mourning. He doesn't say blessed is the mourning. Blessed are the mourners for they will be comforted. The blessing is comfort. So as we think about those who mourn, be it whatever death, sin, cruelty, injustice, that's not the blessing is the fact that you're you're having a hard time with that. Now, praise be to God that he has brought us conviction over sin. But the blessing is the comfort. The comfort that will come and the comfort that has already come through the person and work of Christ. So second point, the anticipation of comfort. Jesus states that the truly fortunate people, those who are blessed, mourn because they will be comforted. So while we are those who mourn, the mourning is not what is the blessing, but it is the fact that our mourning is not the end. We will be comforted, and that makes our mourning not only manageable, but it makes it anticipatory. When we mourn, it's an opportunity for us to worship, knowing that this is nothing to be compared with the comfort that is coming at the glorious return of King Jesus. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory. The word for comfort here in Matthew 5 is a future passive. And that means that comfort will come. Comfort will come and that comfort is something somebody else is going to do to us. It's future and it's passive. We can't do the comfort. It will be done to us in a future time. How awesome. The fact that it's much easier to handle a cold or flu if you have someone there to make soup for you, fluff your pillow, change your Pandora station. It's much easier to handle being sick when someone's there for you. And not only that, that we have someone who is going to comfort us, but the God of comfort is but the comfort of God is not postponed only until he returns. So it's not as though he's saying you will be comforted. Just wait. I know I know it stinks and you're not getting anything right now, but you're going to be comforted. He's saying you're going to be comforted. And there's a very real feeling of that right now. This is part of the already not yet. You are comforted now, but there's coming a day when I. I use the terms full and final comfort that's going to far exceed anything that you're receiving right now. 
It's like the difference maybe between ibuprofen and oxycodone. I mean, one is, well, that's comfort, you know, but I still got this dull pain that's shooting in the back of my head. And the other is, I can't feel my legs, you know. Not only that, but the comfort of God is not postponed until he returns. The mere fact that we are right now pronounced blessed by Jesus. Jesus says in the first phrase, blessed is. Presently you are blessed as mourners. You are presently fortunate. Congratulations right now. Because we have comfort from our sin and depravity. We have been given already blessings that... Uh, exceed heavenly, I mean, that are part of the heavenly blessings in Ephesians 1. We have all the blessings of the heavenly places. Now, we have already been receiving God's comfort, even in our sin and our depravity. God has also, by his design of humanity and compassion for his creation, instilled in us a natural tendency for comfort. I think this is part of the Imago Dei. We being created in God's image, we manifest His compassion and care when we're compassionate to those who mourn. Just think about how your body mourns. This might be a strange concept, but think about it for a second. We don't mourn by just sitting there in a chair, still as can be, with no outward manifestation or sign. How do you mourn? How do you weep? You can tell if the person in front of you is weeping without even seeing them, can't you? Without even seeing their face. You see this. You see this, maybe. You see someone patting them on the back. There's outward signs that I think God has given to our bodies. And maybe scientists say that it's for you know, releasing of hormones or emotions and stuff. But I think God has given us Because he is a compassionate God who is quick to show mercy. He has made us in his image. So part of the Imago Dei is that we are people who are quick to compassion. But we also have this outward sign of mourning so that our brother can be quick to compassion. Does that make sense? So when I see the shoulders bobbing and I know that someone is having a hard time, I can put my arm around that person, pray with them, talk with them. And so God says, you will be blessed. Comfort is coming. You will be comforted. But right now, comfort is coming in my image being spread to every single human being on the planet. And so when you mourn, what does your mom do when you come in and you're crying? Kids, you come in, you, you fell off your bike and you come in crying Mom takes an apron or her shirt or something, a towel, and she wipes your tears from your eyes. And just that tender touch is compassion. That's a natural response for a mom. The natural response of the child is to run to mom. And doesn't it do your heart good? Now, none of us want our children to hurt. But parents, doesn't it do something in your heart when your child comes running crying your name. When they're crying, they're calling your name. I think of that when I read passages. Um, We read the passage in James 4. Earlier in James 4, he's talking about how we come to our Father and call Him Abba. And we run to God saying, Daddy, Daddy, weeping. 
Imagine what that does to the heart of God who is compassionate and quick to show mercy when his children say, I can't do this. There's no one who can comfort me like you can. We run to God with what is ailing us at the time. I think that's why God has made us in the exact way in this instance of mourning and compassion that he has is so that right now in this already not yet, we are the ones who God is gifting some more than others to show compassion to one another. Let me read in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul mentions this and he says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is experienced in your endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you also share in the comfort. Isn't that beautiful that God is allowing us, you to go through something to be able to comfort the person who's going through it next. I'd like to look at the idea also, not only of the Imago Dei, that we are somehow in, in hardwired, ingrained with this idea of naturally being gifted with comfort and these outward signs of mourning so that people can help us in that, being comforted by them. But also looking at the idea of connecting the presence of God with ultimate comfort. When we see from the beginning in Genesis, you guys love it when we start and we're like 40 minutes in, you're like, from the beginning in Genesis, and you know it's going to be a long one. When we see from the beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis, God creates and he creates his people to dwell in intimacy with him. And through the language that he gives in the creation accounts and how man is the climax of that, and God is purposefully, he steps down into the dirt and he molds man and he makes him exactly how he wants And man is there in the garden to dwell with God and God walks with him and they talk. But in the middle of the garden is a tree of life. In the middle of the garden is a tree of life. This idea of God's presence, the tree of life is also seen in the new creation. And it's in it's in the middle of the city and there's a river that flows through the middle of it. So in the in the beginning where God is creating, you have this tree of life. Well, what's the source of all life? It's God. Is it a tree or is it God? It's it's in the middle of the city. It's in the middle of the garden. So God in dwelling in intimacy, desiring to do that with his people, from the very beginning, there's these signs that God is desiring to be with his people. And then in the Old Testament, we see this picture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the way that the tribes of Israel are arranged, the tabernacle is in this small cube in the back section of the Tabernacle is the Holy of Holies. Sorry, that's a cube in in its measurements. And the tribes of Israel are arranged like a clock around it so that in the middle of the encampment is the tabernacle. And who dwells in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies? God. And who comes into there once a year to commune with God on behalf of the people? The priest. And then we have 
through 400 silent years, you have the temple that's built in the same manner as the tabernacle. And then for 400 silent years, you have no voice from God. And the prophets all wail this, where is God? God is distant from his people. Because all throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. But Israel kept spurning God and pushing him away. For 400 silent years, there's nothing from God until what? Four books appear and they're all highlighting the same person. And how does the fourth one begin? The fourth one is John. John 1. John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. We've already been alluded back to the very beginning of scripture. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Our minds are already brought back. Verse 14. And the word, we know that this is Jesus. We know the word is Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is literally tabernacled. The word Jesus tabernacled among us. So no longer is he in a tent in which only one person can go into at one time a year and hope that he doesn't die because he has a rope around his ankle. But he's among us. He's one of us now. He has taken on flesh. And God is intimately involved with getting messy with his people. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus in this way. And he says that he's the true high priest. He's the only high priest who has actually become like this. He's the greater high priest because he became like his people. And he's able to comfort with you in ways that no one else could. Because he's gone through it all. He's experienced this. So then through the, Old Te- through the New Testament, we get this person... When Jesus leaves, he says, don't mourn because I'm going to go. But when I go, guess who I'm sending? Who is he sending? If you grew up with the King James, the translation is comforter. Newer versions ruin my illustration. They call it helper. The comforter is coming. There's one coming who's going to live within you. So not only is Jesus dwelling among you and being one of the people, which is the climax of all of Scripture. But now you have this person who is God living within you. And that's who we have now. So when, when I see you struggling, when I see you mourning, God by His Spirit, and our own Imago Dei natural tendencies moves me to then comfort you in ways that only God can. And so then how does Scripture end? This idea that God's dwelling, God's Presence is the greatest source of comfort. And he promises in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How does Scripture end? Revelation 21. Let's go there. Revelation 21, verse 1. Scripture ends. All time will end. With this, then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
But the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. You wipe the tears from your kids eyes every time they come to you and cry. And you're going to keep doing that until the day they die, if they let you. Jesus will do it once. And the one time he does it, no more. No more pain, no more tears, full and final comfort. So when we're going through today and tomorrow, and you know your physical pains and mornings and these things that are getting your stomach all in balls that can't be untangled and you're weeping and you lose loved ones and you get bad news from the doctor and you're sinning and you don't want to. and You keep sinning and you don't want to. We have this hope. We have this promise that full and final comfort from all of these things that make us mourn is coming. And it's coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we say, how do I escape this now? You wonder how you escape your mourning and all these things that are weighing you down? You get to know that person who, when he comes, will wipe it all away. Yeah, but that's too easy. I need something to hold on to. Hold on to him. He's given you a comforter to keep drawing you back to him. It is that easy. That's what he wants you to do is get to know him. Linger along with Jesus. Stop wondering if you're good enough because you're not. Stop wondering if you're poor in spirit enough. Stop wondering. I, I got to I got to feel blessed. I got to feel like these beatitudes and I got to mourn and they're telling me to be weepy and stop it. Get to know Jesus. And you will never regret. You will. The only thing I prayed for this last night, the only thing I want for Job, I was praying with him last night. The only thing I want for him is to be a man of God. If he is never gets a job and is borrowing money from me all his life, I will want to punch him in the face. But if he is a man of God, you might say, how can those exist? I'm just making an illustration. That's all we want. So you believer, what do you want? Do you want security in this life? Because you're not going to get it. Do you want a 401k? Who cares? There's coming something that far exceeds anything you've ever imagined before. Anticipate your vacation now. Anticipate that trip that is coming. Maybe, maybe you are an unbeliever. And you're mourning with absolutely no hope. I don't know everyone that's in here. I, there's kids in here. And I don't know. God knows. 
God knows your heart. God knows you're here listening to a guy who stumbles and fumbles over his words and can't even think of how to begin a message. And God knows. But he brought you in here for this verse. And God's spirit can use one verse that in the Greek is six words long with two prepositions. And, you know, like there's only three words actually that matter, you know, that matter. There's only three words. And God can use that to bring you to saving knowledge of himself. You say, I'm lost. I don't I don't know. God, I don't know left from right. I don't know up from down. God's saying, it's just me. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let's look forward to that. Let's push each other on for that. When you mourn, let's, let's encourage each other with that. There's come and rest. There's come and comfort. Let's pray to that end. Let's pray. God, we come and we, we think about topics of mourning, and I've been thinking about mourning and weeping all week. We can think about these topics and mourning over our sin and are we doing it enough and did we do it yesterday? And God, that's not what you want. Know for a fact that's not what you want. You don't want us wrestling with all of these questions that at the end of the day get our mind all jumbled and we you want us to draw near to you and you will draw near to us. When we do, our minds are brought to the holiness of God. We see our sin for what it is. We repent. We draw near to you. We love your scripture. We love serving people. We look forward to heaven because you're there. We don't have a plan for the future. We just want to draw near to God knowing You will draw near to us. So God, I pray for us. pray for us as a church. That You help us to draw near to You. That You help us to desire You. Get us in Your Word. Get us, get us to the point to where, like Josh preached last week, that we, we see ourselves as always struggling with wanting to be self-reliant, but needing to be God-dependent. As if our every meal depended on you. Because it does. So help us get to that point. Where we want to just draw near to you. Leave everything behind. And follow you. That's what your disciples did. And let, we pray that that is our heart's cry. And that's what we will be able to do by your grace. So Spirit who indwells us. Continue doing the work you've begun in my heart. Draw me to weep over my sins. Draw me closer to Christ. And help us to be thankful for the work that Christ has done on our behalf. That has blessed us already. That gives us great hope. The hope of the gospel. We pray for these things. Looking forward to your return. And there will be full and final comfort. Help us to anticipate that. Look forward to that. We pray, come, King Jesus. Amen.